Timothy Chalamet. Josh Brolin. Jason Mamoa. Because obviously they use the James Bond theme tune for Dune. Uh, so I'm doing Dune today. Um, dude. Oh. Okay, first things first. This is going to be spoilers galore. So if you haven't seen it and you would like to see it without spoilers, or if you haven't read the book, or then stop listening now. Because there are so many wonderful things about this movie that I can't be bothered to pussyfoot around whether it's going to spoiler it for someone or not. Spoiler it? Whether it's going to spoiler it for someone or not, um, I'm just going to talk about it. Because God damn, this is a great film. Um, excuse me while I have a sip of coffee. Uh, for all you ASR fans out there, that was me slurping the good stuff. Um, where to begin? I, 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 I re-watched it last night. Um, and I made notes throughout, I got it on Blu-ray, um, cause I'm still one of those weirdos that will actually buy hard copies of things. I just like to have hard copies of films and what's nots. It's good. Um, so I, I pretty much was taking notes throughout, so I'm going to try and not do a play by play because that's boring and you've seen it, but anything that was catching my eye or evoked an emotion, um, I made a little note of, right? And I, I'm pretty sure 90% of it, 90% of my notes are just me gushing over how good the cinematography is, the special effects are, the music, all that good stuff. Um, also, little um, pretense to that is I am not a special effects expert. I am not a cinematography or lighting expert or anything like that. I'm just a fan. Um, so I won't be able to break down to you like, yes, they used Adobe 12.70, blah, 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 to create whatever effect it is. You ain't going to get that. There's plenty of amazing YouTube videos you can watch of people breaking down the ins and outs of the practical effects. I'm just going to talk about uh, why it works in a storytelling capacity and that kind of thing. Or at least I'm going to try to. Um, so straight away, the film opens up um, and you've got... Zendaya's sort of whispering narration, um, which is really kind of like, Ooh, okay, what are we getting into? And then, bam, you get this wonderful soundscape of um, the spaceships and things, and it's all loud and chaotic. So I really like the juxtaposition between Zendaya's whispers and then the huge sound coming in because it's like, bam, this is this is us. This is the universe you're in. It's loud. It's crazy. There's uh, there's burps. You know, it's madness. Um, I, I noted FX orgasm for that because of how beautiful the special effects are of all the, you know, the spaceships and whatnot. Um, yeah, so, you know, we start off with establishing the kind of homeworld of Atreides, the house of Atreides. Um, what do they call it? Conlon? Canlon? Something like that. I did make a note somewhere. Caladan. Yeah. Um, it's very nice and green in terms of like plant life and water and it's peaceful and the music was all nice and quiet and you know sort of like ah this is the the nice part of the film 
Um, actually, I might as well talk about the other worlds now. Um, so then, quickly after that, I believe they establish Arrakis, or they kind of establish Arrakis during Zendaya's um, narration intro. But all the aesthetics of that world are all like orange because of the set. Obviously, it's a desert planet, um, but there's a lot of orange and you know, sort of bright, warm lights or a lot of lens flare or it's just like a bright, blinding white light sort of thing. You know, it's a complete contrast to Caladan. And all the music, whenever they're on Arrakis, is all very sort of like tribal and chanty and real cool, to be honest with you. <clears throat> and then they also establish, I'm going to pronounce it Gady Prime. Um, which is the home of the Harkonnens, the villains of the uh, of the movie. Um, you know, Dave Bautista, Stellan Skarsgård, those geezers. They're all bold. I don't think they have hair on that home world. Um, but that aesthetic was all like dark and dingy and there was green, but it was like a kind of toxic green, you know, like a toxic waste kind of green, not like a foliage plant life green like you get on Caladan. Um, so I really liked, oh, and the music as well for that, sorry, was all like intense and dramatic. Like, you know, how when you see the rebels in Star Wars, it's a bit pleasant. And then you see the Imperials and you get the, you know, it's that classic. Here's a villain soundtrack. Here's a hero soundtrack, that kind of thing. Um, it's classic and you might argue it's cliched, but it works. And it straight away, when you see that planet, you're like, okay, these are the bad dudes. These are the, the dudes we don't want to mess around with. Um, so I, I really liked the, um, you know, the I don't know where that would fall under. Would that be the art department, the props department, set designers, the effects team, all of that creating these worlds um, that look lived in. They look organic. You know, they look, um, they look legit, man. Um, so yeah, that was... A good point. Um, and as well, like when you're when you're in these worlds, especially in the home of Atreides, when you're sort of getting introduced to Timothy Chalamet's character and his mum, who is played by I can't find my notes with her name. To IMDb away. I will rate you later, IMDb. Leave me alone. Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica. Yeah. Um, when you sort of getting used to them, there's loads of like little artifacts and ornaments and stuff that kind of give you um, a bit of background into who they are as people. You know, like it's all kind of spiritual looking artifacts. And then obviously they start talking about the Bene Gesserit, which is like the kind of, um, I want to say witch clan of of the, the Dune universe. You know, they're kind of, not quite the equivalent of like the Jedi's in Star Wars, but they are the kind of spiritual witches, that kind of stuff. And peep, they're very highly regarded. People respect them and stuff. So they're, they're dropping little hints about that. Um, so you get what I like about this film because I mean I, I've read the book. I haven't read it for a few years, so there is a lot of it that I've forgotten. I won't lie, but. Um, what I remember about, obviously, because with books and stuff, it's so easy to, you know, really dive into the explanation and the exposition and all of that kind of stuff, like really build the world through, you know, words, because you're reading words on the page. Um, but then in, in films, um, it's always a, 
there's always a fine line between like too much exposition and and not enough you know you, you the, the well, that's what i like about the makers of this film is that they would have realized that some people have read the books and been big fans and some people will know nothing about what's going on. So, you know, the people that are diehard fans that would have read the book a million times and know all the names of the houses inside out and have probably already had a heart attack over my mispronunciation of everything. Um, you know, they, they don't need to be spoon-fed everything. But then the audience that are going in blind need to be told a little bit about, you know, they need to be told enough information to understand the sort of rules of the universe and, and who does what and, and this, that and the other. So... Between Zendaya's narration at the start, and then uh, Timothy Chalamet's character Paul, he does a lot of sort of studying and revision and stuff about Arrakis and that, and he has this little uh, like kind of voice recorder thing um, that fills in a few of the blanks for the audience. So between like the narration and that, it's it's just enough exposition for you to go, okay, I get what's happening here. I get the you know the rules of the universe and that sort of thing. When I say rules, I don't mean like, don't murder, don't steal. I mean, you know, like, how they travel through space. How, whatever. You get it. Um, <clears throat> ah, yeah. This note actually just wrote down as costume design off the chain. Because <laughs> when that, when early on in the movie, the Empress Convoy comes down, um, I'm going to call it the Empress Convoy. So basically, for those that don't know, but for those who probably watched the film or read the books... Um, each sort of planet or world or system is governed by each individual house. So the Caladan house is governed by uh, House Atreides and the Harkonnens, which are the villain dudes, uh, they look after Arrakis, which is, you know, the Dune planet. And the Emperor is in charge of all of them and he decrees early on that the Harkonnens got to leave Arrakis and the um, Atreides, House Atreides have got to basically take it over and start governing that planet which causes a bit of a ruckus but anyway so this convoy comes down and costume design off the chain like you've got you've got the sort of diplomatic uh politician types coming there to decree you know the the emperor's will you've got the uh, one of the head of the Bene Gesserit there with her like kind of um what do they call it veil kind of like a, a bride well it's more like a funeral veil over her face you've got all the house of trades in their like formal attire it's just it's insane like i can't remember in the book if if there's that much description given to exactly how each individual person is dressed like then you've got like the emperor's military police and you've got the atreides soldiers and stuff it's ah, oh, it's so so damn good like they really really must have had fun coming up with those designs and either, you know, translating it from page into real life or just going full bore themselves and coming up with it. It's really good shit. Um, oh, yeah. Does anyone in all of Hollywood have a better hair and beard combination than Oscar Isaacs? I don't know if that was, like, costume department beard and stuff. It very may well have been. But that dude's got such good hair and such good beard, man. <laughs> um... The shield effects. What does that note mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you've got Timothy Chalamet um, doing a little bit of sword training with uh, Josh Brolin's character. Um, what's his bloody name? Gurney. Gurney Hellick. Yeah, that's it. 
um you know he's the he's the you know the sergeant the taskmaster the you must be prepared type guy you know so he gives him a little um a little bit of training with their sword fighting but they demo these shields right and the principle of them is you have this kind of bracelet that you put around your wrist and when you activate it your whole body gets covered in this shield and straight away they give you they don't tell you what it is they just show you what it is and they show you how it basically works with like kinetic energy so say for example if someone was going to shoot a bullet at you the shield would respond to the overwhelming sort of force of the kinetic energy and deflect the bullet whereas um because then they where they start then fighting with swords when they go to slowly press the sword or the dagger through the shield that the the shield start it's, it's basically like a blue shimmer a blue shimmer around their bodies that represent the shield right and then when they start pressing the um the sword into it it starts to go red a red shimmer which shows that because there's not as much sort of velocity or kinetic energy coming through it i don't know if these are the right scientific terms by the way velocity and kinetic energy but it sounds right to me so i'm going to keep saying it um it it breaks the shield and i really really loved how they did that because I'm not going to shit on the old dune movie but if you can like youtube or if you've seen it or google it or whatever how they did the shields for that one good god not good um so yeah, they. I really, really liked how they did it in this one. It's uh, it's it's really subtle, but it's it's enough, and it it shows you exactly what's happening. Um, and just a quick note, because by at this point in the film, it's um, there's not too much in the way of stakes or tension, right? It's just introducing the characters and the houses and and yada yada yada. And there's a there's a little bit of of, of an ominous air to the uh the emperor's decree of them leaving caladan to go take over uh arrakis but there's not too much and you can sort of tell that paul timothy chalamet's character isn't he doesn't quite understand the gravitas of the situation right so the sort of penny drop moment for me of you know the stakes being increased is just after they have their little uh training sparring match brolin's character um gurney uh, he has this sort of small, short monologue where he's like, the Harkonnens aren't humans, they're brutal. And he really, like, really sells it enough so that the audience know that it's it's a big deal. Like, if he if he doesn't sell it enough, then it doesn't work, you know? It, it just doesn't... The stakes aren't raised. So that the stakes being raised from that point in the movie onwards do kind of hinge on Josh Brolin delivering that correctly. Um, and I think he did. So, well done, Josh. Ten points for Gryffindor. Um, yeah, and then, ah, oh, the design of Stellan Skarsgård's character, because you, you, he gets revealed a little bit later on. Ah, coffee. Um, he's, he's, they put him in this giant globby bloopy fat suit thing and i'm not fat shaming anyone but that's literally how he's designed is this he's supposed to be a bit of a glutton you know like his his whole um tribal kingdom or whatever you want to call them the harkonnens they've been producing spice off of the arrakis the dune planet um and spice is um it's a hallucinogen but it's also what they convert into um the sort of space fuel to get them 
to be able to travel through space uh over vast distances and stuff like like how now it would take us like i think it's like eight months or something to get to mars from earth or something like that that might be entirely wrong but the idea is like with spice it's you know it's like driving from i don't know london to edinburgh i don't know i don't know that might be entirely wrong but that's the idea of the spice it's good for space travel um so he's just be- stellan skarsgård i mean sorry uh, his character um king harkonnen i think they call him the baron or something baron vladimir harkonnen um he's this big gluttonous kind of like intimidating blob of a character but initially he's he's in some sort of like steam room mist bath type thing so you don't quite see him um and i really like i i really really like it when you never get to see the the villain in all their horrific glory straight away when they're sort of like withheld you know jaws does it the best they never show you the shark and when you do see the shark you see bug rule of the shark because it ups the uh the scare factor um so yeah so i really like that the little f- there's so many cool little bits in in the kind of like set design or the um the art department or the props department throughout this film that are never like put under the spotlight it's never hey look at this really cool thing we did they're just there casually and like if you catch it you can just appreciate it but um paul kind of gets w- woken up in the middle of the night to go do a test with the benegesserit and there's like this little lamp that's like following him down the corridor it's just like a floaty hovering kind of lamp thing that like you know it is effectively his torch and like just little things like that i'm like that's really cool i can't remember if that was like described in the book of how they light their way when they're walking around at night um but i really liked it i think you know it's really cool nice imagination and brilliant execution I'm going to try and edit these page turns out from my notes and stuff and, you know, the burps and the farts or whatever, but I might not, so you're just going to have to deal with it. <clears throat> um, the most, like, page-to-screen part of the film that I can remember from the book or the, the one that stood out the most to me is the the Bene Gesserit test that um, Paul has to go through, you know, where if you don't remember what I'm talking about, it's when he has to put his hand in the box and uh the Bene Gesserit head what's she the reverend mother or something she holds like a poison needle i can't remember what she calls it it's got a weird funky sci-fi name she holds this poison needle to his his neck and it's like if you take your hand out of the box then i will kill you um and basically while his hand is in the box he experiences like the most brutal pain ever and you're like okay this is a bit funky and before the pain starts kicking in, this this like real this is where the soundscape is just like oh it's it's majestic. This like intense whistle, not like a kettle on the boil, but it, it's sort of like a weird whistle starts building up in the background, increasing. Yeah, I guess it is like a kettle on the boil. And they keep cutting back to his mother, Paul's mother, this is Timothy Chalamet's mother, Rebecca Foygerson. Um, she's stood like outside of the door and she's like weeping and hyperventilating and panicking because like she's been trained with the Bene Gesserit. She knows that they can be a bit, you know, cutthroat, a bit brutal. Um, so that the the intensity of what uh, Paul's going through with his hand in, and the pain increasing and his like, 
sort of tears and his screams of agony and whatnot and stuff building combined with like the mother crying combined with the whistle of the soundtrack and blah 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 it's just it 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 makes it really palatable and really tense um and then he he sort of switches he like he finds his zen his concentration uh, and he just like stares down at the um reverend benedict and like these big trumpet fanfare things start going off not fanfare like the king is back not like that shit but like you know these big trumpet soundscape starts going off in the background and it just like I don't know, the words that came to my mind was like resistance and bravery and it's sort of like foreshadowing his sign of nobility to come because he's sort of like touted as you know like the one you know like a, a kind of neo harry potter type thing you know he's like the one that's gonna tell all those bad men to go away um yeah uh, uh, and she has um charlotte rampling who plays the reverend mother she has such a good parting line from that film like he passes the test um as you probably know and she says uh goodbye young human i hope you live but she she doesn't say it like that how i just said it that was a really bad line reading she's like goodbye young human i hope you live and there's like just about enough kind of doubt in her voice that it's that it's she doubts that it's likely he'll live you know she expects that he's gonna die kind of thing and there's she sells it in such a way where you're just like shit dude the odds are really stacked against paul and the rest of the atreides and whatnot so i really really liked her delivery from that great great performance um ah uh, yeah so then again i'm trying not to do a play-by-play but you know i wrote my notes in the order that i was watching the film so it is going to be relatively play by play but um a little bit after that paul overhears a conversation between um his mum and the reverend mother uh talking about the sort of prophecy of him being the one and that kind of thing and there's a really good like film school 101 of how you can create tension between two characters or how you can create like the doubt between them and that kind of thing. I'll, I'll I'll talk you through it. So it's all a bit misty around them, and they're stood quite far away. So when you do an over-the-shoulder shot from either Paul or the mum's perspective, um, the who so say if we're over Paul's shoulder, looking towards the mum, they're far enough away, and it's misty enough that um, she's a bit sort of blurred, and you can't really quite see her. Exactly the same when you go over her shoulder and look at Paul. He's a bit blurred. You can't really see him. There's mist. Um, so then obviously they cut between those sorts of shots and mid what we call mid shots which is normally sort of like waist up so you got you know the torso and the head of the subject in the frame right and then they also cut between um close-ups which is just your face basically generally speaking anyway so where he's over paul has overheard this conversation about him sort of being prophesized as being the one and that kind of thing um he's a bit angry with his mum at this point um he feels like maybe like he's been lied to um he's a bit disappointed in her and that kind of thing so where this scene is kind of done from his point of view 
and she's a little bit on the back foot with her sort of trying to defend her actions and defend the fact that she hasn't told Paul the whole truth or the whole story just yet, you know, sort of trying to protect him, that kind of thing. Um, you get, because he's angry at her, you get a few close-ups of his face sort of showing his anger and, and his, like, accusations kind of thing. And then a lot of the shots on her are either the mid-shots or the, the far away over the shoulder shots where she's a bit blurred. And then there comes a point in the conversation where she sort of, she kind of has enough of his accusations and is a little bit defiant herself. Like, she doesn't quite say, I did it for you and I did it with the best intentions, but that's effectively what she's saying. And at that point, we finally get a close-up on her face. So it's a really good, like, 101 of film schooling to sort of show, you know, his intensity and his anger and his accusations with... A certain amount of his close-ups and sort of like uh painting the mum as a sort of um the bad one in that scenario by not really showing her close-up and then as soon as it's her turn to sort of um have her say and fight her piece we then get to see some of her close-ups so real real simple cuts and real simple edits and probably didn't warrant me talking about that one set of edits and cuts and shots for the last five minutes but i'm a film nerd and this is what i do um and then you get a really nice uh sort of like not a montage you know he doesn't run up the steps of philadelphia and start punching the air to the eye of the tiger theme tune but um he paul gets to kind of say goodbye to his home world you know because everyone's shipping off uh, shipping off to Boston. No, everyone's like shipping off to uh, Arrakis. So he, you know, he he he's been studying Arrakis. He knows it's a desert planet. So he's you see him sort of like walking in a field, picking up a, a bit of flower or some grass or something. Um, he looks out and sees this lovely ocean and the sunset. There's even a little pool of water as the tide's going out. There's sort of like this little pool of seawater, and he like dips his hand into it and the first time it didn't the first time i watched the film it didn't occur to me that that's him saying goodbye to his home world but like again i don't know if it's written in the books i don't know if they did it just so that from like as in the filmmakers did it just from an audience perspective so you can have him saying goodbye to his home world and stuff but it was really nice and it was really sort of subtle and they didn't make a big song and dance about it it was literally just like those sort of three or four segments and uh yeah it's really good and then bam you get this straight away you get the blinding lights of Arrakis, you know, the the sun shining all over this desert world. So it's a real, straight away you get a juxtaposition between the two. One of my favorite effects um, in the movie happens a lot throughout it and they never really draw a lot of attention to it. It's um, those kind of mosquito uh, helicopter plane things that they fly. Um... I don't know, I just I really liked it. Like, the way the, the they sort of have, like, uh, two wings on each side that flap up and down like a mosquito. And everyone sits in the cockpit and sort of flies it like a helicopter. I just, I just really liked it. It didn't look like it was on the string. It, you know, the wings didn't look like dodgy sort of CGI or whatever. You know, it, it, it was just great. I mean, all the effects in this film are great. And none of them look like dodgy CGI or whatever. Um... Oh yeah, and when when they actually start exploring um, Arrakis and the, you know, the palace sort of thing that they get to move into and whatnot, um, 
the art department and stuff, you can tell that they were just having a whale of a time. There's this really cool kind of, um, what would you call it? It's a big bit of artwork on the wall. I don't know what you call that. Tapestry? That's probably the wrong word. Uh, but it's of um, this giant sandworm. And at the same time, you've got, again, one of uh, Paul's little audio recordings for his studies and stuff telling you about the sandworms and they're the biggest organism on the planet. They can go up to 400 meters and they're like hella dangerous and whatnot. Um, but it's really, really cool artwork on the wall of uh, of this giant sandworm and stuff. So props to the art department for that. Well done. I mean, then you get the little hunter seeker moment, which in the book was hella suspenseful and really cool. And it's not that they rushed it on the film, but you know, they, they, it doesn't need to be lingered on. So you know, it's kind of good that they just like boom, this happens. Moving on. Um, Ah, oh, shortly after we get introduced to Javier Bardem's character, um, and he plays the leader of the Fremen, which are like the natives to Arrakis, if you don't know. Um, they're like proper desert people, uh, in the sense that, like, you know, they are the only people that can survive out there in the desert because it's their homeland, it's what they do. You know, they'll bury themselves in the sand and jump out on you to ambush, uh, you know other armies or whatever like they're they're legit they're really really cool but he the reason i noted down javier bottom in this scene is because that dude is so naturally cool like he just kind of has this scene it all kind of expression like um robert mitchum if, if you're not familiar with robert mitchum he was the um he was max Cady in the original cape fear you know, there was the Robert De Niro Scorsese remake of Cape Fear. He did the original one. And he's he was really good at having this kind of like, seen it all before, you're not going to impress me kind of look on his face. And Javier Bardem, with this particular character of um, Stilgar, the leader of the Fremen, he, he really embodies that too, you know, that kind of like... Because from his character's point of view, you know, his, his home world was basically invaded and occupied by the Harkonnens which were brutal they were constantly fighting the Fremen and he's basically expecting much of a muchness from House Atreides when they then move to Arrakis and whatnot just realized I'm half an hour in and I'm like on the first half an hour of the film I might have to do this podcast in two parts but yeah so he's expecting much of a muchness so he really embodies this kind of like you can say what you want to me um Oscar Isaacs Mr. Duke, but you know, you ain't gonna pull a fast one on me, kind of thing. Um, and then I made a note that says the score, the effects, just wow. So you know, I must have been impressed with something. Ah, um, oh, yeah. Then we get, we finally get to see one of these big bad worms in action, uh, which are like one of the real big centerpieces of the film. Um, so basically, anyone that isn't too familiar with it or needs a reminder or whatever, um, these giant worms burrow through the sand, and they're attracted to like the vibrations and sounds of people walking on the surface of the sand and stuff. And one of the reasons that you can make... I, I've covered it briefly, but one of the reasons that Arrakis is such a profitable planet is because you harvest the spice, and the spice is within the sand. It's like these kind of glittery little speckles within the sand. So... 
that's how the Harkonnens made so much money is because they were harvesting and selling all this spice and that's what House Atreides have come here to do is the same thing. So they have this um, this spice harvester and, uh, you know, going about the sand, raking in all this spice and they have a few spotter planes around looking out for signs of worms because when worms get ready to attack, they start breaching the surface and you can, the surface of the sand, I mean, sorry, and you can start seeing the, uh, the sand rumble, which is like, you know, it's like seeing Jaws's fin out there on the horizon or in the distance on the water, you know, straight away. You're like, oh, here we go. Here comes the villain kind of thing. So it's it's that kind of effect. It's really cool. Um, and they set the scene. So you have um, the Duke, Oscar Isaacs and Paul, Timothy Chalamet in uh, in one of these little mosquito planes with um, uh, what's her name? The Herald, um, the Herald of the Change. Um, Benjamin Clementine uh, she she plays her part really really well but she's basically kind of there to oversee the, the changing of the guard between the Harkonnens and the Atreides right and uh, she's kind of given them the lowdown but it it is ultimately exposition for the audience's benefit right because Timothy Chalamet is already aware of what's happening Oscar Isaacs is probably already aware of what's happening but it's exposition for us so they set the rules of what of what is happening right they don't overdo the exposition. They just, like I'm doing now with this explanation, they just say, these are the rules. This is how it all works. Uh, these are the stakes. Um, and then as soon as they're done with it, things start to go wrong. So they're like, here's the explanation. Here's the rules. Bam. Now we're raising the stakes and things are going wrong. So the music starts to ramp up a little bit. You see the sand start to move in the distance as one of the worms starts getting nearer. All these sort of like explosions of not explosions but you know eruptions of sand coming up really really cool i don't know if it was cgi or if they actually got stuff blowing sand up in a desert somewhere not blowing up with fire as in blowing up like a, you know like a gust of air kind of kicking it up um oh and then um basically they can't evacuate the uh, there's a there's a normally they would just airlift these spice harvesters away, but something goes wrong with it and they can't. So what they have to do is evacuate all the workers off the thing, get them in these little mosquito helicopters, and then bugger off. Um, so Paul goes down to try and, and help these people, but some sand gets kicked up and it, like I say, it's got spice in it. And then this is the first time you see the the effect of spice on a human in the film, and straight away the atmosphere changes, like the sounds and. You know, like um, in Saving Private Ryan, when he gets shell shocked, you get that like uh, that um, whistle, that you know, that high pitch like kind of thing. And you know, when someone tries to talk to him, it's like like you can't really hear it or whatever. It's not like that, but it's a similar atmospheric change. Um, so I really, really liked what the sound department was doing with that. It was really, really cool. And then ah. Oh, as the worm gets like, it's, it's one of those things they only just make it out in time. So as the worm gets nearer, have you ever seen sand liquefy? So basically, if you if you run enough vibrations, I think I saw this on like Brainiac or something like years ago. But if you run enough vibrations um, under sand, it starts to liquefy. So you can actually sink into it, right? And it's kind of like a shimmer. It's like a rippling shimmer effect. So... All the all the sort of sand kicking up of the of the worm approaching, you know, like a jaws, like a shark's fin approaching you. When it then gets near, if the fin gets near you and then dips down, you know you're about to get got, right? So there's sort of eruptions of sand, kind of 
you know decrease a bit and then the shimmer by their feet start happening and they start to like sink a little bit and then you're like oh no like it's about to come up they're just about to get on they they sorry they just about make it onto the mosquito plane and and then you finally see like the the mouth of this this giant worm just engulf the spice harvester like it's a tic tac you know like the scale that they put into these things is insane it's it's really really cool and it, they're hanging off the back of the of the mosquito helicopter like on the little sort of drop down entrance way thing you know they're hanging off of it just looking at this giant monster just engulf this uh this spice harvester um but you only see the mouth you don't get to see the worm in its full glory yet so again they're doing the jaws thing you know they're not quite revealing what it is like you know when kind of i think it's like halfway through jaws when uh they're in a little kind of like um what do you call it not a creek they're in a little kind of like uh pool area it's not it's not a beach or whatever and some dude gets tipped out of his kayak or his boat or something and as he's trying to get back onto the boat you just see the shark's mouth like grabbing by the legs and pulling him pull him under you don't see the full shark you just sort of see its mouth similar kind of thing it's almost like steven spielberg knew what he was doing and set the bar for all that other stuff but brilliant brilliant shot um ah the harkonnen attack is is just special effects orgasms it's so so goddamn good so i'm going to talk through a couple of those quickly um so there's loads of like it's it's proper you know it's a proper war part of the film you know that like there's a big battle there's explosions happening and it's like uh apocalypse now you know you know like that scene in apocalypse now where they like carpet bomb all that uh napalm and whatnot and then there's like helicopters flying in the foreground and the explosion of the napalm is in the background they do something very similar they have these like mosquito helicopters flying while all the explosions are going off in the background and whatnot it's mad but my favorite effect in the whole battle is um the the giant sort of transports that brought all the um the house of trades there they they have those the similar shields you know i was talking about with the blue shimmer on or like what the people wear they have a similar kind of shield on these these transports and the harkonnens like bomb these from above and you see the shell of the bomb kind of like start to burrow its way through the shield and then it hits the the transport and then it blows up the transport but the explosion stays within the shield for like a split second so instead of like blowing up and out like a mushroom cloud or something it blows up within the confines of the shield and then obviously once enough damage has been done to the to the transport the shield would deactivate and then the explosion comes up and out I don't know if I'm wording it well, but if you can't quite remember what I'm talking about, go back and watch that bit because it's so cool. It's really, really cool. Um, I don't, I can't ever remember seeing anything like that in any other film. So you know, absolute props to the effects team for that one because it's it's so good. Ah, oh. um, and ah, oh, there's so many great okay let me just talk quickly about um the cinematography right so you've got greg frazier who won an oscar for this film um you know last week or whatever um will smith didn't slap him but he won an oscar and 
he's uh he's fast becoming one of my favorite uh, cinematographers actually and i only recently found out that he was working under one of my other favorite cinematographers robert uh no not sorry not robert richardson <laughs> he's one of my other other favorite cinematographers um robert richardson does pretty much every tarantino movie um so he's legit but um roger deakins he you know he did like blade runner 2049 skyfall no country for old men uh prisoners and likewise um greg frazier had also worked on a few uh similar films with him so um he's just he's so good so there's 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 these wonderful like shots where it's all sort of like you know the silhouettes of the soldiers fighting you know like josh brolin and stuff uh, trying to fight off these harkonnens while all these explosions and whatnot are going off in the background and and stuff um it's just beautiful cinematography i don't know it's it sounds really simple to just say like there's darkness and then there's bright orange lights from the explosions nah but there's so much more to it than that and it it's it looks more like a, a painting kind of thing you know it's it's really 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 good um ah and the solar flare carpet bomb special effect is really cool so i describe it as a solar flare carpet bomb it's basically like um they shoot out all these sort of like bright white lights you know um i don't really know how else to, there's maybe there's like a dozen or so falling down from the sky and they basically carpet bomb the area and it was a really cool practical effect um and all the all the where it is this battle takes place at night all the the lights and everything are um sort of orangey in hue and stuff and it's just it's it's a really nice looking scene despite the fact that it's a battle and there's carnage everywhere um so i mean like i've I've spoken about the editing and stuff um already so quick shout to joe walker um who was the editor for this one did films like Hunger, Harry Brown, Twelve Years a Slave, um, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner, which are also um, the director of Dune, uh, Dennis. I believe his surname is Villeneuve, but I've never heard anyone pronounce it, so I might have pronounced it wrong. Um, but he directed uh, Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049. So him and Joe Walker have worked together quite a lot. Um, and they're a good team teamwork makes the dream work um so yeah i just want to gush a little bit over how good those guys are um i think dennis villeneuve and greg fraser are really astounding when it comes to sci-fi um you know like like i say they're both they're they're fast becoming sort of in in my like top they probably are in my top five directors and cinematographers respectively actually just because they, they deliver they deliver whatever film it was that i was talking about sicario outstanding arrival outstanding blade runner ridiculous so good um so check out their their back catalog of work if you haven't already because like i say they're legit anyway um I re- oh, so yeah, yeah. Um, another really cool sound effect, actually, that the sound department does is that the Bene Gesserit have this ability to um, what they call use the voice, which is essentially kind of like manipulate someone to do what you want to do. Um, so they, you know, they just say like, you know, give me the knife or open the door or come over here, whatever it might be. 
Um, but the way the sound department bring it on is like, say their normal sort of speaking voices, like at this kind of volume, and they're like, hey, how are you? Let's go to this planet. When they do the the voice, you still get that, but then they layer it with kind of like a shout and like a, a, a demonic kind of deep resonant kind of thing simultaneously. And it, the volume goes from like, hi, how are you? To like, really loud and, and ominous it's a re- it's a really cool uh sound effect that they do to to demonstrate the voice um ah a point that i really liked as well i can't ever remember in the book um hearing about stellan skarsgård's character the um the harkonnen leader whatever his bloody name is can't ever remember hear about him flying but <laughs> but they get him to fly <laughs> he kind of just like hovers and levitates his way around like like i say he's a big gluttonous fat dude so he probably doesn't want to walk you know why would he put his ankles through it um and there's this really cool shot where he uh approaches one of the traitors or the traitor that basically helped screw over house um atreides where you sort of see from um oscar isaac's point of view when he sat opposite him in this table after he's been like held hostage and stuff you he's in focus but stellan skarsgård at the other end of this long ass table isn't in focus and you just see him levitate up and then move slowly slowly towards the camera um still staying out of focus the whole time and i think the fact that he stays out of focus makes it kind of scarier because you don't quite it it gives you that element of the unknown like why is he approaching the the traitor why is he coming towards us has he got a weapon on him like you know what i mean it just it creates that kind of like oh this is uncomfortable it's the i think it's the fear of the unknown in the subconscious mind of an of an audience member so i really like that choice because they very easily could have just like you know had the camera on the side of the table having both Oscar Isaacs and Stellan Skarsgård in screen and just see him float across fully in focus and it probably wouldn't have had anywhere near the same effect that it does in the way that I just described it um ah this amazing fight choreography as well really really good fight choreography when um Paul has a premonition into the future where he's fighting with the Fremen and it's really really cool he does all like these gymnastic cartwheels and stuff where he's just like cutting through people like i'm pretty sure he's either fighting the harkonnens or the um the emperor's uh army whatever they're called i can't remember but he's just like laying waste to all these people and the fight choreography is mad and then like in the background you've got the the giant sandworms erupting up through the sand and like eating you know dozens of army men at a time and stuff it's just proper good telly that is um yeah oh the little sand mouse i've made a note about the sand mouse there's a there's a moment where you get to see this little sand mouse with his big ears and his little feet and stuff and it was bloody adorable um pretty sure it's not based on or it's not a direct copy of like any real sand mouse but the um the creature design for that was it was really cute um Ah, there's a really nice tense moment where um, Paul and his mum are basically being hunted after the big Harkonnen attack when pretty much all of House Atreides is like done at that point. Pretty much everyone's been killed. The army's been wiped out. They ain't got shit. Um, 
but so they're being hunted and there was this really cool moment where they've they've kind of got a bit of a safe haven you know there's a few fremen around um basically helping them and guarding them kind of thing um but this uh sort of platoon i suppose of harkonnen soldiers come to uh to to hunt them down and where the fremen and paul and his mum and that are trying to keep on the down low i guess to try and emphasize the secrecy and the fact that they're you know trying to remain hidden and stuff there's no music so these these dudes um these army dudes the evil ones like descend down um they they never sort of show you how or why they can just sort of float down there's no like wires they're not like abseiling down or anything like that they're just kind of floating down but they do it really slowly as if they were abseiling and there's no music like i say and it's just that choice to not have any sound or music and stuff is i don't know it just made it that little bit more tense um considering so much of the film has been like loud with its soundscape and its music and stuff it was really cool uh and then we moved to duncan idaho's last stand which was um jason momoa's character he's considered like probably the best soldier in house atreides like absolutely messes people up but he basically sacrifices himself so that um, uh, Paul and his mum can can get away, and it's a really really good last stand. He like locks himself in this corridor, um, and I like and initially like fifteen dudes come through to try and fight him, and he just goes to town. Really really good fight choreography, um, where it's it's a little bit old boy esque, you know. I should do a podcast about old boy. But it's a bit old boy-esque uh, where you've just got like one bloke absolutely walking through the enemy but not in a kind of like Superman way where he never once looks like he's in trouble. Like they do it in a way so that, you know, he's not this invincible unit, you know. He he is human at the end of the day. Um, but it's really, really, eventually he falls, you know, at their hand. Um, but it's just bloody bloody good stuff um oh and then i made a note of because at this point in the film we've seen a fair few different sets and scenarios and locations around arrakis um and you know like likewise we've seen them in um the harkonnen planet and house of Dredi's planet and i think even at one point the emperor's planet as well but i made a note of saying like the set designer the costume designer the audio the uh special effects like they're all having a blast like i really hope they were i mean i'm sure they were you know working to the absolute bone and maybe a little bit stressed out meeting deadlines and whatnot but creatively it looks like they were having a blast like it looks like all of them just had maybe not free reign it was probably like you know the director's sort of vision ultimately and he probably had final say on stuff but it looked like they were having a blast because it's it was all just so bloody good it's designed so well the execution is fantastic um none of it looks like it's copy and pasted from other films or or franchises or whatever um and then they do a really uh so so after duncan idaho falls they do a really really simple um sort of cinematic trick to uh, build the tension of the fact that the uh, Paul and his mum are being pursued right so they leg it to this mosquito helicopter to try and get away and it's it's got trouble starting it's old it's haggard it's been there for a while it's covered in sand 
um so you know there's the the stuttering of the engine trying to start and stuff but all the while they keep cutting between um like paul and his mum glancing towards where they've just ran from and then the camera the camera stays within the cockpit so you only see it from their perspective but it's this big dark empty kind of hallway from where they just ran from and you the camera why it's important for the camera to stay within the cockpit is because you can't quite get a clear look into the darkness whereas if the camera moved all the way to the entrance of the mouth of the hallway that where they ran from you probably have a better view as to what's coming and what's following them and what's chasing them so the fact that you're restricted to the view from the cockpit of the mosquito helicopter thing it it increases that tension of like oh my god is something gonna come out of there running at them is is a a gunshot gonna fly out of it like you never know so it's a it's a it sounds relatively simple but it's one of those important things for a filmmaker to do of to just you know keep the tension bubbling um ah oh, and you get the um the herald of the change woman she gets a really really nice uh final moment you get our first use of a thumper which is basically uh, it's not the rabbit from bambi it's a distraction tool for the worms so basically what it does you stick it into the sand and it like sort of bumps a rhythm like boom 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 to distract the worms to that spot because like i say you know they follow the vibrations um and she ends up getting ambushed by the either the harkonnens or the imperial soldiers or whatever it is hunting them down because she's helping paul and his mum at the same time i don't think i mentioned that um but she gets that uh, uh she says something like i only have one master uh she havan or or haloon whatever it is which is basically the the um arrakis or fremen word for the the sandworms right they're considered sort of like gods or godlike creatures of the planet kind of thing um and then again you get that sand shimmer and the mouth comes up and swallows um her and a few of the other soldiers and stuff it's it, it's again it's just like a practical effects sort of monster movie moment galore it's it's really bloody cool um oh and and what's his face um stellan skarsgård gets to sit in a big tub of like tar as a healing bath like in Star Wars, they have the back to tanks and stuff, you know, like after Luke Skywalker fights a Wampa and he's in that big sort of like blue floaty tank. It looks looks like quite a nice way to heal. But Stellan Skarsgård is in a big old gloopy bath of tar. <laughs> it's, I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they put like a shitload of food coloring in, in water or whatever. Um, but it's a really, really cool practical effect. Um, ah, and as well. Um, so... Um, when Paul and his mum are escaping in, you know, from that scene I was literally just talking about in that helicopter, um, they they fly through a kind of sandstorm and stuff to get away. And then the the helicopter starts to fail them a little bit. And they show, it's, again, it's really, really simple. Well, it sounds simple, uh, soundscape sort of stuff. But you hear like the creaking of the, the wings, you know, and like in inside the cockpit it sounds really loud and, and tense and stuff and then when you're outside it's a bit less loud but basically they kind of just like creak the 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 wings and stuff um i'm not really explaining it very well but it's really really 
just solid filmmaking. It's not showcasey. It's not a grandstand piece of the film. It's not like a, a huge set piece finale. But it's just really simple filmmaking done really bloody well. So good for you, makers of Dune. Um, you get to see the Sandwalk, which is really cool. So the Sandwalk is the the way the Fremen um, avoid creating like the the vibrations on the on the floor of the sand that attracts the worms they walk in a really kind of unrhythmical way um i won't go into it watch the bloody film um but shortly after that we get what i call the big worm chase um so paul and his mum uh they've crash landed in their helicopter they're trying to make their way to the fremen because they know it's their only um their only chance for help against the the harkonnens that are hunting them down and uh they end up attracting this worm and so again you get you know the shark fin effect of of the worm approaching them so all this sand is kicking up and they're legging it they're legging it for all their little legs can manage and um obviously the the music is really intense and it's dramatic and and whatnot and then they finally make it to this like rocky surface just in the nick of time of course because it's hollywood they wouldn't have got them there with 30 seconds to spare it's like half a second to spare and then finally you get to see one of the worms in all its like monolithic glory it's towering over them looking ominously in intense it's it reminded me of king kong like when um what's her bloody name the female character in, in king kong who basically like befriends kong but it, it was kind of like that you know it was like staring in the eyes of of the beast the belly of that beast yeah, is that kind of thing um Oh yeah, it's just it's just good monster movie shit, man. It's just good shit. Um, and then Paul gets his little champion fight. Um, one of the they, so they meet the Fremen a bit later, and um, one of them basically doesn't believe that him and his mum are cut out for it. You know, they're they're off worlders. They don't belong here, and all that sort of shit. Um, so he challenges them to a fight. And again, it shows the nobility of Paul's character in this moment because um, he isn't aware of the Fremen tradition that if someone challenges you in the scenario that he gets challenged in, it's a fight to the death. Um, so he bests the challenger and holds his blade to his throat and is like, do you yield? Um, and then Javier Bardem is like, "Yeah, that's not how it works, mate. You're going to have to finish him off. So they fight a little bit more. He... I think maybe another like three times he shows that he could have killed him and his uh Javier Bardem's like um is he toying with him and it's he delivers it disrespect like in in a sense of like is he disrespecting one of my soldiers by toying with him when he should just be finishing him off um and his mum's like no Paul's never killed a human before so this is like a big deal for him too and then eventually you know Paul sucks it up and uh and kills him um but it, it it emphasizes the nobility of paul in the sense that like he doesn't want to have to take a life he feels he doesn't have to take um but he will also do what needs to be done either for his own sake or to protect his mum or whatever the reasons might be i just you know i thought it was cool so he kind of um accepts his destiny accepts that the path he is now on or the path of the one of the chosen one i can't remember what they call it there, there's a there's like a, um a fremen term for you know being the one um 
and there's uh to sort of you know um i guess look towards the future of because this is right near the end of the film so to sort of like look towards the future of of where he's gonna go and the path he's on and his path of like you know being the the chosen one and stuff uh obviously the music's all tense and and loud you get a bene Gesserit voiceover from that um reverend mother again sort of reinstating it and i actually got goosebumps at that point when i was watching it because it's such a good combination of of all those things um oh yeah and a couple of times throughout the film um oscar isaac's character the duke has spoken about needing to harness desert power so when they were on uh the caladan planet you know they were they were able to use like land power sea power air power um but they didn't have any deserts on their planet but where um arrakis is just desert they're gonna have to harness desert power um and then you actually get to see an example of it so you it pan so they're all walking with the fremen going to one of their villages and then in the background there's a worm cutting through the sand and then it zooms in on it and you see there's a fremen with these two like like ice pickaxes when people climb everest and stuff because they're idiots but <laughs> no i'm kidding climb it if you want it's a good achievement um he's got like these hooks into the worm like with ropes on them and stuff just like you know basically like surfing on this giant worm and um timothy chalamet is like desert power righteous it, yeah it's just a really cool moment um and i've even though i read the book ages ago i still can't really remember it especially the end and stuff but because that's kind of where the film finishes and i've never wanted a sequel so badly like you know if there's a franchise movie like you know star wars or mcu or some stuff like you're always like yeah you know i want the sequel to that but like i just wanted part two of the book (laughs) so badly after seeing it because it's one of the best um book to screen interpretations so to sum up as ross geller would say um it's one of the best you know page to screen interpretations like like i say the art department absolutely kills it the special effects department kills it it's all the way they build the world that present it to you like i said before with just enough exposition to to invite you in and let you understand everything um it's just it's a fantastic bloody movie um but that's it that's basically my sort of uh, analysis of dune um can't wait for part two again smashing job by all the performers zendaya jason momoa oscar isaac stellan skarsgård chalamet rebecca ferguson javier bardem dave batista as well didn't mention him um again the director dennis villeneuve dop greg frazier editor joe walker and i'm not going to list the, the rest of the cast and crew because it would I'd be a real bloody day but they all they all deserve an oscar nomination or an oscar win or something like it's a fantastic movie one of the best sci-fi movies i've seen for a long time um so i hope you like that that was the second episode of my podcast um rate review subscribe whatever and peace have a good one